Billy, what did you bring? Helps if I unmute. It does. <laughs> I brought, I brought uh, one of uh, a text, a biblical text that uh, just means a lot to me uh, in my grounding and in my vocation as a pastor. Uh, it's Matthew chapter five, verse six. Okay. So we're going to talk about what that text actually says and what it means to you in just a moment. But I want to hear and see what Charlotte brought. I brought a song that plays in my head for almost all the time. It is a Brooke Benton song that says, Oh Lord, why Lord? Hmm. A Brooke Benton song. I've not heard of that person, but, um, Maybe if Charlotte's up for it, maybe we'll actually hear a few bars. <laughs> I've been trying to prime her to sing it, but that's, you don't have to decide right now, Charlotte. Maybe you'll, it'll just bubble out of you. <laughs> oh, well, first of all, thank you both so much for saying yes to being a part of this program, Not Quite Strangers, is a podcast that you guys have all tuned into. My name is Valerie Hope, and I'm your host. And this is an opportunity that I have to introduce two people who are not quite strangers. I happen to know both of them, but they don't know each other. <laughs> and uh, the hopes is that we build connection, inspire curiosity, and in our own way, shape, or form, challenge status quo. So bringing these two individuals together today is such a treat. I've known Billy for about three years or so. His wife, Janet Morrison Lane, has been on the Not Quite Strangers podcast before, so you may have seen her in a previous episode. And also, Billy has been a part of my previous podcast, Time to Come Alive. So, you know, Billy, you're no stranger to podcast world or Valerie Land, as I like to call it. Valerie Land, I like that. <laughs> Valerie Land, that's right. Yeah, you, you've had some experiences there. That's um, right. <laughs> and Charlotte, I've known you for about six, seven months now because you are in the process of getting your certification as an executive coach through the Berkeley Executive Coaching Institute. And you're one of my coaching clients. So we've had opportunities to chat quite a bit over the last few months about your career. Now, the unique thing is that both of you are in different parts of the world right now. Billy, would you like to share with us? Tell them where you're from or where you are. I am in Dallas, Texas, and this is my home. Uh, I'm a native, uh, born and raised here in Dallas, Texas. Oh, for some reason, I thought you were in Missouri. Oh, you were no, from that's Missouri. That's my wife. That's my wife. Okay, but you met in Dallas. That's what we it is. Met in Dallas, Got so. it. Thanks, Billy. And Charlotte? I'm currently in Durban, South Africa, in the East Coast of South Africa. I'm from Johannesburg. Right on. So I'm so glad that both of you said yes. And before we get into what you brought, I'm curious, why did you say yes? <laughs> because I don't take it for granted that this is an experiment. You don't know each other. You barely saw each other the last, what, 20 minutes or so before we started recording. So what, what had you say yes to this invitation? I, I said yes because I trust you. And I, I believe in your work and I believe in what you do. And also I'm curious. What is this about and what impact will it have? Mm. Well, thank you for the trust. I appreciate that. And the curiosity. That's going to come in handy. <laughs> Billy, what about for you? I tend not to say no to Valerie. <laughs> <laughs> kind of common sense. <laughs> I should be asking for a lot more. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you, you, know, you know how much I um, uh, admire what you do and the passion with which you do it and the expertise, the professionalism, all that. So uh, anytime I have the chance to um, be a student, uh, as I uh, at the Valerie School. You know, I try to do that. Valerie yeah. Land. Valerie Land. That's it. Valerie Land. That's it. <laughs> Hopeland actually has a better ring. So Hopeland. That can Hopeland. be. That can catch on. Hopeland yeah. is a thing. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Well, I I'm so grateful, Billy, that you feel compelled to say yes. And I think that's really less, um, or maybe is as much about your generosity of spirit and just being open to new experiences. Although sometimes it could be challenging. I know you tend to be kind of a reserved guy um, in many cases. And so I don't take for granted that you said yes and, and, and trusting me like Charlotte is too in having this conversation. 
what I, I thought was really fascinating about introducing the two of you is because although you're in different parts of the world and you have uh, very unique perspectives on living and life, right? You're both super committed to the work of diversity, equity, and inclusion in your own ways, right? So Billy, you as a pastor in your church community is something I know you and I have talked a little bit about what you're hoping to, to create there. And then Charlotte, in your organization and also beyond, right? In, in, in ways that you can impact and influence the conversations around diversity and equity, equity and inclusion. And I thought, oh, this would be a really cool conversation to have with someone that's African-American, someone that's South African and see where it goes. I have no clue. <laughs> um, so, so let's start with your object or the, the, what you brought to the show. We'll start with you, Billy. You mentioned a a Bible verse. So tell us what does it say and what is it about it that makes it so impactful for you? Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, the Bible verse is the gospel of Matthew chapter five, uh, verse six. And it simply says, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness mm -hmm. for they shall be filled. And so that. That is <clears throat> what I call a ground, very much a grounding text for me in my uh, vocation as a pastor, uh, because I'm, uh, I'm an activist pastor, meaning that I am, um, uh, my theology is very much connected to uh, liberation, to human rights, to social justice, to racial equity, and so forth. Uh, and that, that text reminds me uh, that um, uh, just the importance of my to pay attention to my practice, uh, because um, it is the it is the hunger and thirst for uh, equality and equity and human rights that that drives it. And my hunger uh, can always be co-opted, curtailed, uh, and so I want to continue to sharpen my appetite, mm -hmm. uh, because particularly as uh, uh, I, I don't want my personal experience. Uh, to be the measure of what equity is, uh, uh, you know, particularly being a man <laughs> in a world that's very much patriarchal, uh, I can easily overlook um, issues of fairness and equity uh, that women uh, face that I may, that may be, you know, somewhat invisible to me. And so it's important that I keep my appetite, that appetite uh, expanding and sharp uh, so that, you know, I don't just become uh, kind of satisfied with okay yeah I'm 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 in a good space uh, but that may not be for my sister so wow that's what it reminds me well on behalf of all women no, I'm, I can't speak on behalf <laughs> I dare not I dare not <laughs> so no but I, I I get that the maintaining the appetite is is staying curious staying open it sounds like you really mm -hmm. challenge yourself to not make assumptions and to, you know, like in your own way, shape or form, challenge the status quo, which is what we talked about in this particular mm -hmm. podcast. Um, tell us the Bible verse again. That was Matthew chapter five, verse six. Verse six, okay, mm -hmm. got it. So we'll, we'll make a note of that in the show notes as well. So people have it as a reference if they wanna go back to it. Thank you, Billy. Charlotte, what about this song? Tell us about that. When we were growing up, we in South Africa um, before 1994, we connected a lot with the soul music that came out of the United States of America. So uh, Motown and that kind of music was really inspiring to us. Uh, uh, rhythm and blues and mm. all of the songs that came out of that whole movement mm. of phenomena that was going on out there. They used to inspire us and keep us um, inspired and hopeful that the world will eventually change. That's pre-1994. So I knew this song in my childhood. It's, a, it's, a, it's an American artist uh, called Brooke Benton. Um, we grew up in a world of song. I think by the time of seven, I was understanding uh, the, the Messiah, I was understanding Mahalia Jackson and understood all of those songs because my, my dad used to whistle through the house. And, <laughs> you would really, really understand all these hymns um, that my, my dad sang, um, uh, whistling, we needed to, to learn them. So this is one of the songs that he used to whistle. And when we learn the lyrics, the lyrics are so powerful, and I'm going to read the, the first stanza. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. It says, I've searched the open skies to find the reason why. Oh Lord, why Lord? The color of my skin is said to be an awful scene. Oh Lord, why Lord? And it goes on in the second standard. It says, I got to live and live and give so much more than I can give. Oh Lord, why Lord? We're singing about race because it was about the color of the skin. But when you look at all of the other impacts on, on society, anybody that feels exclusion or injustice can ask the same question. Mm. Why should my difference be so painful mm. and or have such negative impact on me? So this song inspires me to look at those that have or are in a space of exclusion, of injustice, and whether it's in the workplace, it's in the family, or it's in my social arena, and access ways in which in my sphere of influence, I can make it better. Um, and this song has inspired me to always look out of those people that are seeing it without saying it. Mm. Why should my difference be so painful and bring so much exclusion for me? And that's why it's such a deep, powerful song it for is. me. And of course, it reminds me of my dad whistling it around the house. Mm. Tell us the name of the song again. And um, it's by Brooke Benton, B-E-N-T-O-N, Oh Lord, Why Lord? Oh Lord, Why Lord? Spotify yeah. or anyway, it's a beautiful song. And the, uh, most, the other thing that's powerful about the song is the way he sings it, mm -hmm. because it has melancholy, but it has hope in it. Mm -hmm. It's one of those, mm -hmm. those ones where it, mm -hmm. it reminds me of your pain, but dream, it, gets you into dreaming about how yeah. better it can be. To transcend the pain. Mm -hmm. Got Absolutely. it. That's good. Yeah. Beautiful, oh, beautiful. So I'll also make sure I add the note of the song name as well as the artist. Uh, would you like to whistle a few bars? No, I cannot sing. No, no, no <laughs> sing it. Whistle, whistle. No, that's even worse. <laughs> 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 I tried, I tried to. Yeah. Okay. And also, I like the way that he says, Lord, in this world, you may so secret. Mm. You know, it's just the way he has having this dialogue mm. with God that says, Why are you allowing this? Yeah. And you see that social, that's injustice, whether it's what happened in the US recently, over time and over and over, what's happening in my country, over and over, what's mm. happening in Turkey, what's happening anywhere in the world, Myanmar. The question is the same, why? Yeah. And that's maybe a good question to ask now. Um, and thank you for singing that. I don't take that for granted either. Oh, you, you, you call that singing, that's great. <laughs> that was singing, that there, was singing. I'll, get, I'll take it, I'll take it. <laughs> um, so so let's, let's go back to the, this question why, not so much why all the suffering that's happening in the world, right? Where people feel excluded, but why is it such an important topic or time for the two of you? Like, what is it that makes this particular commitment that you have so, so important? I'll, I'll go for it. I'm, and also it's about something that I learned from one of the first victims of the apartheid regime. His name is Ukobutetiro on the occasion of a graduation in 1974 in what was then a Blacks only universities. He said, uh, what's, what's, what, what good is an education of an African child if it doesn't come to the aid of Africa in the time of Africans most need? Mm. So I came from a place of disadvantage given the fact that I grew up under apartheid regime and I crossed into, into, the, into the democratic regime and I ended up in a place of privilege. And the question I asked myself is that therefore, what's, what's, what's the point of having this privilege if it serves no one? What's the point of having rank and power in my job and it serves no one? What's the point of having this education that I have when it serves no one? And that's the question Nkubu asked all of us in 1974. And when I, when, I, when I do my work, I always ask myself, what's gonna be different when I'm done? And what is what dial must I move for who, and what who's gonna benefit in it, and do it in a way that actually teaches inclusion, teaches the fact that everybody has to be in, and that's what inspires me about make a difference in your spheres of influence, and find a way of moving the dial towards the positive for everyone. Mm. 
Mm. Because that's the reason why you are in a place of privilege, in a place of power, mm. in a place of leadership, and you're in a space where you can influence and you can, ch- you can change the world, your own little world. Absolutely. You know, it's funny you say this, Charlotte, because not funny, haha, but funny as in it, it, it really strikes a chord with me. And Billy, you and I may have talked about this um, before with Janet, but I, over the last year, especially during everything that's happened here in the U.S. and, and the, the voices that are rising now to address these challenges of diversity, equity, and inclusion, especially in the workplace, right? And overall in society, but especially in the workplace, several people reached out to me to see, hey, do you, do you teach implicit bias? Do you teach you know, you know, all these different courses that would bring to light or, or support some of the initiatives that these organizations had? And I always found myself going like, no, no, that's not my thing. Um, here's some other source or resource or person that you might want to reach out to. But I also felt this, you know, to, to your point, what's the purpose of this education and privilege if it's not here to serve? And I really had to think, well, what is my education? What is my privilege exactly? And what came up for me was I have the privilege of being able to connect with I would say just about anybody. I feel really comfortable walking into a lot of different spaces. I'm an immigrant in this country. I, you know, I will talk about this later, but I didn't know I was black until I was 14 years old. Meaning, yes, I knew my skin color, but I didn't know that it had a significance, social significance until I was 14. And so that level of freedom, if you will, um, the, the, of the trauma that I think in many cases the skin color has had in the history of the United States and in other parts of the world, I didn't have. And that actually had me shy away from like, it's not really my fight, or I don't really know if I can contribute in any way that would dishonor or disrespect the trauma that individuals are experiencing it. But what was interesting and what started to come up after all these different requests and I got some coaching around it, you know, coaches need coaches <laughs> sometimes to see, um, I realized, you know, to your point, my education and privilege actually allows me to see a perspective that maybe doesn't get shared very often or perhaps bring people together. And this podcast is an actual direct <laughs> uh, solution, if you will, or response to what I fought, felt I could bring to the space. Literally had someone that shared you know, she wanted to have more diverse community for her child to grow up in. Um, There's a woman who's of Jewish descent, white, living in a metropolitan city, and she's actually been a guest on the, on the show. So you have to subscribe to the channel if you want to hear that interview, www.notquitestrangers.com. <laughs> but she actually, um, just by prompting, saying that she wanted to have a more diverse community. And I was like, how is that difficult? Like, you know, if you live in a metropolitan mm. city, that should be pretty easy. Mm. But then I was like, no, somehow it's maybe, maybe simpler for me. And, you know, the fact that I can just pick up the phone and go, Charlotte and Billy, or, you know, my friend Samuel in Hong Kong, or my friend Mehmet in Turkey, like I have people all over the world that I connect with. I thought, oh, there's an opportunity that I can usher people into a space to have a meaningful conversation. I can facilitate that as a coach. I have the skill to, but then I also have the circle of influence, Charlotte, that you mentioned to bring people that are different together to do just that. And that's how I'm now choosing and finding ways to use this power and privilege, right? This education power and privilege in this space, which is why it makes me so excited to have, you know, individuals like you are out up to doing something important, say, yes, I'll come and have this conversation in public with a stranger because I trust you. <laughs> so this, that, that, that is really powerful distinction that you made, Charlotte, about power, privilege, and education being the, the leverage, right? Being the leverage. I said a lot there, but Billy, take it away. What, what is it that makes this commitment you know, to being an activist pastor, what is what makes that so compelling for you? So for me, um, it really has to do with my understanding of God. Um, and, and this has not always been the case. Uh, I grew up in a very, uh, a very conservative church, very loving church environment and family, uh, but very conservative. And, um, you know, when I say that, what I, what I mean is, 
uh, this kind of separation uh, between, you know, church is this, everything else is over there. Uh, and so, um, but in my adult years, uh, then uh, things began to integrate, if you will, in, in, in the realm of my faith, uh, in my theology, and uh, this discovery of who God is, God is a God of liberation, um, and, and which means all human beings uh, have a right to freedom. Uh, and that is a, uh, as, I, as I studied the scripture, a, um, uh, on God's part, a very radical commitment. <laughs> and so if I am to take God seriously, then um, I accepted the idea that I must be just as committed. Doesn't mean I'm gonna get it right, uh, it's a journey. Uh, but I must be just committed to the freedom of every individual, um, and 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 be uh, and recognize the structures that we as and institutions that we as human beings develop just because we're civilized, but how those structures can be oppressive, how those structures can be um, uh, uh, structures that do not honor the freedom of individuals and 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 make distinctions based on individuals uh, color or gender or, or what have you. And so uh, all that to say, uh, for me, it's a matter of faith and understanding who God is. And that, that liberation uh, uh, is what I'm committed to. And, and, and so when you use the term, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, I'm definitely with that. I kind of put it under the umbrella of liberation uh, and, 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 and the Bible and the text speak powerfully of that. Uh, and Charlotte mentioned the civil rights movement. That's what, um, you know, uh, Dr. King and many of the other civil rights leaders understood. They were men of faith and they understood this radical commitment that God had to the freedom of all individuals. And so mm. that's, that, that's where it comes from for me. Liberation. Yeah. Charlotte, what were you going to say? I was saying that's amazing. That's powerful. Yeah. I'm going to start calling this liberation. Conversations for liberation. I love it. I love it. Maybe That's a third it. podcast in the making. <laughs> so I, I have a question for you guys, and this is something that I've been kind of playing with this idea. And I alluded to it earlier that I didn't realize I was black and it mattered until I was 14. And I, you know, my were immigrants to the US, lived in military bases when we moved to the United States, and so all fairly diverse places. And you know, color wasn't a thing. Like my first crush was in the Japanese guy. I didn't even think that was anything wrong with that. You know, I didn't think there was anything different about it. Let's just say I, he, he didn't know I had a crush on him, but <laughs> that's because I was a teenager and I didn't know better. <laughs> but when I was 14 and we moved to a small community in Southeast Alabama, and I walked into the cafeteria my first day of school and all the black students were sitting on one side and the white students on another. Although there were no Jim Crow law signs or, or expectations, socially their parents had grown up and lived in segregated society for all their lives, most of their lives, and then their grandparents, et cetera. So it was social. And I just realized at that moment, I'm like, oh, I have to sit here because I'm black? That doesn't mm. feel right to me. And I didn't know what to do with myself. So I became kind of an introvert for the first two years of high school, really just wanting to avoid all social, those types of social dynamics. And yeah, I found my way um, in other ways, but I'm curious about the two of you. When was the first time you realized that you were black and it mattered in some way, shape or form? So I'll, um, it, it's funny because I answered this question uh, a few weeks ago in a, in, a different, in a different form. And so, and it was really good for me to think about it. So um, I go back to 1977, uh, I was in elementary school and um, a TV series came out based on Alex Haley's book called Roots. Mm. Uh, and it was on primetime television. Uh, me and my family tuned in every night to watch it. And so I remember um, going to school one day during that series and somehow, you know, before school, you know, we would, we'd always play football, be doing something, me and, you know, you know, boys and, you know, we'd be out in front of the school playing football, doing something. And I remember um, we, you know, I was, I was kind of over to the side and just having a conversation with, um, you know, group, group of kids, you know, black and white, we just standing and having a conversation. And somebody, I don't even know who, brought up 
brought up Roots. Did y'all see Roots last night? And you're like, yeah. And um, uh, a white student uh, said, yeah, man, the, the coolest part, you know, is when they were whipping them niggers. And that's exactly what he said. That's exactly what he said. He said it was really cool. And at that point, it got kind of quiet. And, and I didn't know what to say. I just knew, okay, I didn't really think that was cool. I didn't know how to feel. I didn't know how to process. What I knew though was at that point is that he and I had different roles. Um, because if that's who you identifying with, you know, you're not identifying with what I'm identifying with. And, and I knew at that point uh, there was just these different roles and really what began to happen because our family, we lived in a neighborhood that um, uh, I guess that, that, it, that had been the victim of white flight, if you will, because uh, at one time it was predominantly white and then you know, whites moved further north. Um, when, 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 when that happened, when he said that, it really began to put into context with, for me some of the things I was seeing in our neighborhood that I you know, just didn't make any sense to me before. But uh, things like, you know, when the white neighbors who were left somewhat looked at us with suspicion, almost as if we did not belong there. Um, it, I mean, it just began to put some of these things into context. Uh, and, I, and, and so at that point, I realized, okay, we own, you know, we own two different sides. Um, and, you know, it would be years later till I really figure out what to, what to really make of that. But at that point, I recognize um, my blackness. Mm. Wow, elementary school. Mm -hmm. wow. That's a and do you do you remember? Have do have you seen that 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 friend or that 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 young man since then? Did you guys have any interaction after that? What what happened to your friendship after that? I don't, I, you know, I don't, uh, I may have seen him since then and didn't know it. I mean, we were playground friends. It's like, okay. you know, you know, not, not, Hey, I'm gonna come over to your house. It's, you know, okay. we on the, we on the basketball court or, you know, on the football field, you know, we, you know, that kind of stuff. Okay. Uh, but outside of that, so who knows, I may have run into him. Who knows, who knows where he is or what mm -hmm. he does or what his mindset is at this point. I don't sure. know, but he was obviously in a household yeah. very different from mine. Yeah. Wow. Every time I ask that question, I just I never know where it's gonna go, and it's so interesting to see that moment, right? And and I think we can identify how, wow, that what do you say when something like that happens? But you know distinctly, as young as you were, that now yeah, this we're not on the same side. I think what you said, mm -hmm. we're not on the same side. Right. Fascinating, right. Charlotte. What about for you? Do you have a moment that you recall? Absolutely, it's actually moments of, of transitions and, and, and uh, um, recognition of, of who I am in terms of race and maybe a sense of, of, of who I am in my country. Mm. So um, I think in 1968, um, with the, my grandparents were victims of forced removals. Of, so I'm sorry, what? Victims forced of removal. forced removals. Okay, yeah. got it. The country was being rearranged so that the white people can get, uh, can gain access to very fertile land, and then um, mm. the Africans, black people, everybody else can be put in other uh, spaces where they can be grouped together in ethnic uh, arrangements and be, you know, be put in about in places where they can just become um, places where they come and source labor for mines and for whatever economic activity that's going on. But fertile land was now taken away from them. And my grandfather had almost dual economic streams. He had, he had land and he had cattle, livestock, and then he worked in the city as well. So he was relatively in that particular community, well off, uh, could send his children to boarding school. And that was my grandparents. And they lived in a house for me. It was beautiful, it was big. Um, and, uh, and when the first removals happened, my grandfather had been in prison already, what, 70 that particular year. He, we, they took him to prison because he was resisting first removals. And my grandmother was ill. So my mom had to take me and my baby sister at that time, there were two of us, to go and assist my grandmother. It didn't click on me when we, we were there and I could see the demolition of our houses and the packing of livestock. It just didn't make sense what was going on. It was like watching a movie 
of your, you know, your beloved grandmother's house being de demolished. And then whatever you could rescue, it's packed into a truck and you are packed into this truck and you're shipped away. But my grandfather is missing and I'm not sure where he is. It, it didn't make sense in that, at that particular time until later when I was at school and I was older and I was understanding the arrangement. That was the first one. The second time when I realized that I am a second class citizen in my own country was in June, 1976. <clears throat> Sorry. Mm -hmm. June, 1976, I was born and raised in Soweto. It was a big, at that time, the biggest township in South Africa. It is Southwestern of Johannesburg. And was, that was the epicenter of the June 16 uh, uprising. And uh, the school, the school children that were marching were gonna walk past our school, which also walked past where I lived with my parents in that township called Plainsville. And I was in school. And that day we were asked to leave, so we left. And it's, it's nice because now the school stops at 11 o'clock and you are 11 years old, like, hey, we're going home, we're gonna eat and play. And, you know? and that was what was going on in our minds. Like, go, to, go home, go home, and then we were all dispersed. And then the following, all of that week, from the 16th of June onwards, there was so much violence meted out by white men in army vehicles to anybody they could find in the township who was 100% black or African like me, because we looked, we lived in a 100% in a black or 100% African community because we are segregated by race. So that was the first sense of, uh, who am I here? Why, why, why am I, why me and my people are attacked by those people so violently, guns and, and tear gases? There was a sense of, I am not an equal here, but when you're 11, you can't interpret it. And then it went on and on. And in 1982, when I finished matric, which is going to varsity, and I applied to go to Vets University, which was at that time, it did uh, accept a, a a, a Africans, colored and Indian people, uh, those kind of people, but they, they measured how many they wanted. So I had to apply because I was black African, I had to apply to some other black administration authority. And they said, no, not you, because you, you come from some, you can go back to that Bantustan, which is that uh, area where people like you live. That was, that was the time when I thought, this is serious. They demolished my dad's house, my grandfather's house. They took his livestock. They threw him in prison. They killed and attacked everybody in my childhood. They killed my neighbors. Some of my family members are missing and I'm here. I cannot even go to varsity. And those are some of the ways in which I felt, but what, where the moment of truth, when it really sunk, that I have felt like a second class citizen in my own country was when I voted for the first time on the 27th of April. And and I, and I knew it, and I knew it that, and I felt for the first time when I had a right to vote that now I feel I belong here. Mm. And this is my country and this is my continent because I had never until that day when I voted called myself African. Wow. And I've never before that felt like a full citizen of a, any country. First, I was put in a Bantu stand because I speak Sitsuana in a Bantu stand, stand of Sitsuana speaking people. And then I came to the township and then I had a, a classification called 101A or 101B because I was born here, but I was raised there. Everybody had a classification. And then there was violence against people that looked like me by people that don't look like me. Then I'm not admitted adversity simply because I'm half black. There are layers and layers and layers of exclusion and violence muted on the basis of the color of my skin. Mm. Wow. Charlotte, thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I, I have chills, chills listening to, to what you shared. And, and I get that, yeah, the layers and, and the, I can't imagine, like, what is the conversation happening in your family about everything that's happening, right? From your, your grandfather losing his home and being arrested to the violence, to now this opportunity being taken away from school. Like, what did you talk about in your family about that? Like, what was, what was it like at the dinner table or at home as these things were happening in your life? There were two parts to it. Our parents tried to give us normal lives. 
So you'd go to school, come back, talk about what's on TV, listen to music, go to church, learn Mahalia Jackson songs, uh, go to Sunday school, um, play in a netball team, uh, and, and go on a singing, you know, choir competitions, and 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 you know, take take uh, annual school trips to the coast. It was it was very funny normality that our parents are trying to create for us as in, in that in that object poverty we grew up in. So it was a sense of normality. And also when everybody around you is discriminated and just as poor and, and you play with them. So you actually don't realize how great this thing is. So that was the one portion. The other portion was the fact that we, we kept on missing uh, or people in my family kept on disappearing. Um, I've got a brother, that, a cousin that disappeared. And if you're old enough, they will tell you that he left, but they don't know where he is. Because if you know where you are, where you think you know where they are, or you know where they are, you are going to violently be dealt with by the state. So they come to your house, they ask you, where's your brother? And if you happen to have an inclination that the last time he was here was on the day, it means you know where they are and they will not stop coming to your house. So we were never told why people disappeared. Uh, you know, they went overseas, they went into exile, they went to prison, and, and that's what, what it was. I read about one of my cousins in the media because those conversations were not had, that he was arrested in one of the sieges of, I think, Silverton siege, it was called. That's when I realized, oh, this guy has, you know, Abu so-and-so, we call them Abu, Abu so-and-so has been missing, only to find that this is where he was. He had gone out of the country, came back, and he was involved in some in some a, 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 a uprising, and then he was arrested. And he, now he was in court. And obviously, when he's in court, the apartheid government is going to put you in every newspaper because you are such. Mm -hmm. That's how we got to know. So the conversations around the dinner table were as normal as a family could have, and they were hush hush around what was going on in our families and community, mm -hmm. and the pain in the in the hearts and minds and souls of our parents. They, they worked on it, that they don't tell us. But we then learned, when you start being a teenager, you go, you, you start reading books and you meet other people and you start working, then that whole history come down on you. Yeah. And you, you start interacting with it. So we had a semi-normal childhood, mm -hmm. as, as normal as possible. As normal as possible. It sounds like, yeah, but then there's a lot of, you know, the adults in your life protected you as best as, as, as best they knew how from <laughs> some of the, the painful truth. But yeah, it sounds like, yeah, you still, you notice and you feel it. That's, and I think that's a piece that, you know, I want to come back to in a moment, but like, where does that go? Like, where does that pain, that heartache, that confusion, that, right, anger, all of that go if people aren't really talking about it, but you're just kind of surviving and dealing with, right, trying to make things as normal as possible. Um, yeah. Billy, I want to get your reactions to this because I, I, I see and hear your, your facial expression and your and your voice. What what would you want to say to that to this? Uh, I mean, you know, um, I, I mean, Pav. I mean, just you know, the I, I'm glad you asked about that trauma uh, and, and what you know what we do with it, what happens to it, and um, you know, as I listen to Charlotte, you know, I think um, what what people of color often do is uh, we, we carry it in some way. Uh, we, you know, in some cases, if you are a person of faith, um, unfortunately, sometimes, you know, depending on how that faith, how you practice that, it kind of gets uh, just pushed to the side and, and it'll be better by and by, you know, and, and, and because that's the only way you can move forward. And so um, I think, but but I think that that trauma really doesn't go away. Uh, it doesn't go away, and um, you know when I when when I listen to to the things that Charlotte has gone through, I mean, it shocks me because I say shock, but it, it, it's frustrating. I mean, it, it's very very frustrating, and part of my frustration is when when we talk about these things in the United States. Um, you know, sometimes it's, it's, well, that's, that's ancient history. Charlotte is talking about stuff that's happened 
in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s. That ain't ancient history. <laughs> These people are still alive and walking the earth. And that's not to say that they're bad people. It's simply to say that that, that reality is still alive. It has not gone anywhere. And, and uh, yeah. from my standpoint as a, as a pastor, uh, that's, uh, it is frustrating when I'm talking about, you know, civil, <laughs> sometimes I hesitate to even say civil rights movie because people want to throw it back in the black and white days. It's right now. I mean, yeah. even here in Dallas, even here in Dallas. And so, um, you know, we're, we're, we're removed from, from some of the um, atrocities, if you will, that Charlotte has experienced. Uh, although we, we, we do have our share here in Dallas, don't get me wrong, but, you know, house bombings and people being lynched and, you know, that, that stuff has happened right here in this city. But even in my lifetime, uh, you know, you, you, you know, police brutality. And, and uh, in fact, you know, um, you may have been keeping up with the news. Uh, we just renamed the street after Botham John, mm. young man who lost his life uh, because of police brutality. And he gets somewhat shrouded in this, well, it's law enforcement during their, doing their job. Uh, and and, and the, the data just don't prove that out. <laughs> the data just does not prove that out uh, when it comes to uh, the proportion uh, of people of color who are murdered by police. Um, it, it, it's not just law enforcement during the job. There's something else going on. And it's not to say that all law enforcement is bad. Or, you know, I need to make that clear. Uh, but but we have that, and you know the other thing I think about, uh, you know, we, particularly as we talk about divert, you know, include uh, Charlotte said layers of exclusion. It's so very true. So here in um, here in the you know a metropolis like Dallas, you have quote unquote diversity. So for example, um, you have some schools that are very much diverse in terms of student body. What you have along with that, however, is um, you have uh, a very anemic um, representation of people of color in decision-making uh, positions. And so you have a school district where, yes, there are, you know, Blacks and Latinos and Asian Americans and what have you. But then when you look at the leadership, it is, there is an over-representation of people who are white. So you can have a school district that is, you know, over 70% 75% people of color, but the leadership is less than 12%. That is not diversity and inclusion. <laughs> that, that, that's not what it is. And so um, uh, I, I think uh, people who, who talk about, um, you know, yes, I want my child to be in, more, in a more diverse environment, make sure that that diverse environment includes people who are in leadership uh, yeah. as well as people, you know, who are peers. So those are just some of the thoughts that come to my mind as I hear Charlotte talk. Oof. So making making sure that the system is actually set up, right? It's sustainable. Mm -hmm. It's sustainable that way when you talk about um, implementing that at the level of leadership. And I want to go back to, to what we were talking about earlier in regards to this, this lived experience and the conversations about it. I think one of the things that I'm clear on is that, you know, this is just hitting the surface, if that. I know we probably could talk for like 10 hours about, about all these things and still only scratch the surface. There was a, a quote I saw recently. I actually just saw it this week. And um, it was from this gentleman. His name is Dr. Gabor Mate. And he says, trauma is not what happened to you. Trauma is a wound that you sustained and wounds can be healed. And the reason I got that is because it brings to mind that all of these very painful experiences, if they're not healed somehow, it can sometimes make us ineffective in actually making some of the changes that we want to see or making some of the, um, the making the progress that we're committed to making. So I'm curious about the two of you, how are you handling the wounds and, or what have you seen in, in your environment to address those wounds? Why are you laughing, Billy? Um, not laughing because it's funny. I mean, they're all wounds, right? Yeah. And and there, I know, I know for me, uh, you know, therapy, therapy is a, is a, is a part of my life. Uh, I have a therapist because yes, uh, 
there's not always the space where you can talk about these things and and you know even even for me even though my you know my my um uh, my wife and children are very supportive but you don't always feel like you can you know dump these things on them because they carry them right so that's not always fair and so um uh that that kind of you know mental health emotional health uh therapy is is a part of my life and and unfortunately however it's i don't think it's nearly available enough uh to to us as people of color not not even close um especially if you don't have means in some cases to to pay for that um, sometimes that's the only place, that's the only time you can get it, uh, because some of the, a lot of times those who do it at very reduced or pro bono rates, uh, as good as they are, they're overwhelmed because it's not enough of them. Uh, mm -hmm. it's not nearly enough of them. And so, um, you know, in short, your question, yeah, I, I think there, you have to have, uh, a, a space where there is, uh, you know, emotional, therapy and, and, mm -hmm. and you know, to, to, to talk these things out. Yeah, absolutely. Charlotte? The, the trauma lives and, and also uh, for us is that um, you can have individual trauma, but when you have communal trauma, trauma like we mm -hmm. do families and societies, mm -hmm. um, then the outlets are limited because the sure. very person you want to talk to also needs to awesome. talk to you. Yeah. Wow. So you, you, the one of the most important things is that you find systems that hold all of you together, and then you, you, you understand where you are at, and so your level of alertness and self-awareness has to be heightened, in a sense of which of me is is acting here and which of me is responding, um, which part of me is dealing with this matter right now, um. For instance, I'm extremely sensitive to uh, exclusion and I'm extremely sensitive to disrespect because it's subconscious mm -hmm. and I try to alert about how I'm going to respond to it because that was a traumatic experience. It's not the fact that you refused me to play, you know, there were six of you, I wanted to be the seventh and you refused. It was systematic, meted out by an unjust system. And, and it was in all layers of my life and in all aspects of my life. So exclusion for me, it's an extremely sensitive thing. And, and, and also the, the sense of not being allowed to. So when you take up a leadership position like me and in the team that you're in, you have a diverse team and, and then you are building a diverse organization, you've got to be alert. Who of you stepping into a leadership position so that you do not inadvertently exclude others based on the pain of your life. Because I can get in there and see myself as that traumatized you know, toddler, five-year-old, um, three-year-old, or that traumatized 11-year-old, or the traumatized 16-year-old you know, when I finished matric, or whichever layers and layers of exclusion, um, I can do that. Uh, so I need to be alert, and I need to be aware, and I need to then use systems that I have to manage my own individual and communal trauma that we went through and not let it play out. And one of the things that's powerful about this song is that it was, you know, I, I knew it from, I think the seventies, if not early eighties, but this song is still what is so painful about life and society is still up to today. Yeah. You, you can sing that song as if it was written mm -hmm. yesterday. That's right. You know, I remember when we were watching a, a, a news out of, out of the, 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 the news in America, what was going on in America. It was one of the songs I had to play in my car because I, 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 didn't how to, I didn't know how to ask God. Why? Who are you going to ask? So the other thing is, as, as you believe, is that I rely on therapy and I needed to access multiple different types of therapy. Mm -hmm. You know, it is about pastoral care in church. Uh, uh, I'm a Christian. It is about learning the Buddhist way of life, um, about about how you how you deal with life and things you can't control and how you interpret your pain and deal with it it's just finding skills so there are multiple ways of dealing with it is acknowledge your pain understand it be alert be conscious of it find systems that work for you 
and also have a very high sense of self-awareness to know when it can blind you. It becomes your, your, your terrible blind spot because you can overreact. I, I, I can overreact. If a white man comes and steps in front of me, I can overreact or I can be, uh, I can be, better, I can uh, be a better me. So okay. it's, it's that alertness of right. which you are you going to meet out now. Right. Because yeah. my, anger, my anger around injustice is very, very close. My antennas are up and they're very sharp. Mm. Yeah. But my responses cannot be the same responses yeah. that we're meeting against me. Yeah. yeah. And I so identify with that, Charlotte, just because I think, uh, uh, again, coming from the, 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 the practice and the vocation of, 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 uh, of faith, that our responsibility, at least my responsibility, I put it, I'll speak for me, is uh, it is to have that alertness, as you talked about and then somehow find it within myself to have the grace to educate, not to Absolutely. overlook, but to, but to educate because that, that individual or that group will continue their exclusionary practices sometimes in ignorance because they simply do not see. Mm -hmm. And so, so that when that happens to me, that, that uh, I, I do have a responsibility to do my best to educate. Absolutely. Let me share a little story that happened at work. So we are having a system that uh, in the redressing of the injustices of the past, uh, we have race-based uh, 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 decisions sometimes in South Africa. So we do report on race and gender and age and ethnicity and all of that. It's a, it's a legislation in the country, we report to it. Then we put a system in place to try to address only black uh, portion of our employees. So I have one of our, our employees that uh, said, this is, this is not fair and this is not right. And I actually created a platform for those employees that felt it was not right, mm. all right, to come and see me. I mean, I'm, I'm in the top eight in the organization of 32,000 people. So I have rank and power and privilege. And, and for me to make myself accessible was the first step of breaking that line of saying, mm. even when I'm in power, I'm available. And the second one was the fact that you can imagine this is a white male and I'm an African woman. So we are in, if it was in the past, we'd have been in very different spaces. Now I'm in a position of power and there are employees in the, in, the, in, the, in the sections of the organization that are in the operational levels. So he comes and have a conversation with me. He talks, and I'm, I'm borrowing you a video on the story of Educate. He goes up around how bad we are as African people. We are banning schools, we, we don't understand, and this is not fair, and, and so on and so on. I took that opportunity to first share with them my history mm. and what it meant for me to be excluded mm. and why this law is a just law. It's not a fair law, but it's a just law right. and why it has right. to happen. And, it's, and it hurt individuals then, and this one is gonna hurt individuals like him as well. Mm -hmm. and, and he wrote me an email after that. He said, I've worked in this organization for the first, for a very long time. It's more than 20 years I've worked here. It's the first time I'm speaking to a top manager in the company. The second thing is that I appreciate your past and I understand why you have to do what you're doing. And thank you for taking the time to educate me, use that word, in explaining why things are happening, why this law has been passed and what happened to people like you. I, and he said to me, I never knew. I said, of course, the system made right. sure you don't know. That's exactly, that's exactly it. That's exactly it. So the, right. the, the alertness is that you use what you have, power, privilege, and education to extend a better kind of humanity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's right. Spot on. Amen. Yep. Wow. Thank you. I, I, I want to go down this, <laughs> this path because there's... There's so much I want to know. Talk about inspiring curiosity. Um, but a few things, just to kind of play back a few of the things that really stood out to me. I think one is that both of you are proponents of really doing the work, right? Whatever inner work needs to be done because you're both here to serve, right? Your commitment is so clear to, to not only yourselves, your families and your communities, uh, but really to, right, to educate and serve other people. And in order for us to, to, to do that, and Charlie, you said that, um, it can't be based on the pain of our lives. You know, mm -hmm. we, it's, it's hard to heal the sick when you're sick. And yeah. so 
finding healing, finding support, finding whatever it is that we need in order to be able to provide something, um, uh, you know, to be of service, to be at the highest level of service and most effective level of service. Sounds like that's, that's a big cornerstone of what you, the two of you have, have been doing. And then the other piece that I hear also is that you both keep your, I don't, I don't want to use this word to diminish, but there's an edge, like there's an intentionality. There is a focus and a passion behind what you do, not as a reaction to the pain that you're experiencing and dealing with, but as a response to something needs to be done. And I'm going to take responsibility for making sure that I do something. Right. You get, you, you get what I'm saying? So there's, yeah. there's that, I, I call it an edge because there's, there's this very um, insightful, purposeful conversation that you're having in either your place of work or in your, in your church community, but that, that you all, you both have taken on the role of being the person, like I'm the one, I'm the one that's here in this community, in this moment, in this embodiment to make something happen. Um, so those are the two things that I'm really uh, impressed and awed and, and admire about the, the two of you and where you are in your, in your life and your path right now. So I hope this conversation doesn't end here. I, I feel a part two coming on. I don't know. I'm just saying, I'll just drop a seed <laughs> if I see a part two. But as we're coming to the end of our time together, um, I'm just going to invite us to zoom out just a bit and hear what are your reactions from the very first time you met an hour plus ago to now and having a, a conversation like the one we've just had? Wow. I think I have been so enriched by, by the experiences and the stories and the life of, of Billy Lane and, and just the passion with which he does his work. Mm -hmm. um, I, first of all, I need to say, I have extreme sense of respect for people that do the work that you do. Utmost respect, because it's an unending work yeah. and I don't know how you do it and you do it where you are not expecting reward and also the outcomes are not measurable in today's in terms of today's life of measuring. So it's a sense of higher purpose that I really respect. And for me to have this privilege of listening to you and your personal stories, I mean, that does a story of Roots. I still refuse to watch it and I haven't watched it. I'm one of the people that will never watch Roots. I don't blame you. <laughs> yep, I won't. So, and uh, just knowing that it hurt and you were able to lift yourself above it. It's just remarkable. Mm. It's just the story of a life that, that you live every day. And when you, the other thing that I took away is when you say, it's today now in my community that I see the injustices. Because you know, when you, are, when you are far from other people, you always feel that and think that they're in a better space until you see what you see on national television. Yeah. But when you hear a, a friend of Valerie that, that says, it's here and now in my community and I'm gonna do something about it. It really has been an amazing experience listening to your story. And, and thanks for being so vulnerable and, 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 and bring it out. It's, it's an enriching story and thank you for the work that you do. Mm -hmm. I'll, remember, I'll, remember, I'll remember your story. <laughs> well, I think, I think I'm gonna say that Valerie, Valerie owes me because you put me, you put me on a show with a show enough heavyweight soldier like Charlotte. I don't even, I shouldn't even be on camera. I need to be like Ford and Louie and just be off camera listening to Charlotte because uh, what, you know, you're, you're, not only is your story profound, the, the, your vocation and the professionalism, how you handle it at such a high level is just, I mean, it's inspiring. I mean, I'm thinking, I'm like, man, can you come to Dallas? Can you, can you please just come to Dallas? I mean, we got some good folk in here in Dallas. Don't get, don't get me wrong. But um, um, it's, I mean, it's just, I'm, 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 I'm deeply inspired. That, that really is for me a, um, uh, a model 
for me. Uh, you, the, the way that uh, I did not realize you were in such a big organization and the weight of your responsibility and the, the grace and accuracy with which you handled th- situations like that, because that's hard. I mean, I know that is hard. Uh, and, 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 and let's not overlook the fact that you are a woman. Uh, and it doesn't matter where on this planet you are, or what color, if you oh, are a definitely. woman, that you know, you, you know. So, so, so enough said about that. And so, uh, yeah, just great deal of respect and ins- I mean, inspiration for your work. And definitely, um, you're probably not gonna get rid of me. I'm gonna get your email because I definitely want to keep you. up and and follow up because I know there's just I just there's a lot uh, that that I need to continue to learn from you. Thank you so much. Thank you. What an honor. Thank you so much. Oh, the honor has been mine to observe this. And yes, the connection. You still owe me, though. I, <laughs> we'll figure that one out. We'll talk about that, though. Don't worry. We'll figure that one out. <laughs> so I'm curious, what, what didn't we talk about that you would like to continue talking about? Not that we'd have time right now, but if you just could give us some headlines, like what are some things that you can now hear and see? Oh, I have this question, or I'd love to t- touch this topic. Like what would you continue to have conversations on? I, and that's exactly what just, just crossed my mind. It's almost like uh, when Biru was saying, I have reached this level and this, and, 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 I, th- and, I, and I want to say, I, I still suffer microaggressions at work and in my life and in my workspace. And right now I, I run seminars for uh, professional women at work just to say to them, it's going to happen. And, and what are you going to do about it? Um, and in these seminars, and, and, and the, the one gentleman calls it for women, I call it for families, because it is important that workplaces appreciate families. But when you look at, and you, when you raised it that and said, I, I'm a woman at work, it, it really still is about that, is that the spaces are not inclusive. Mm-hmm. And you still have a sense, even at my level, where you say something and another man has to say it and then they hear it. And um, in, in, in some instances, I, I have the courage to speak out in that meeting, but most of the time I do private education. I never let anything go away, even when, when one of the people I worked with in one organization started uh, talking very ugly about my country, that one person was an expert. I had a very private education with them. I spoke for a whole 35 minutes telling them the history of my country. And, and when I parted with them and they said, thank you very much. So I, I still suffer microaggressions as an African woman and, and the journey is long and hard and um, I'm only a few. So we still have to talk about how do we, how do we get up and lift and continue doing the lift? And it's, it's heavy work and we have to, to keep going. Mm-hmm. So one of the things we need to talk about is that what is our role in leadership to lift others up? Mm-hmm. The, the ones that have been through what we've been through going through. And as, as, as Bidu was saying, it's here and now. I mean, the stories I was telling about 1968 and 1976, these are the stories that are happening now. Yeah. This, is the, this is the violence that's meted out by a state against people who happen to look a certain way. So we, the work is not finished. So the dialogue is about how do we lift others out? What, what's the way that needs to get done? And I, I really like that, that conversation to be had with the people that are struggling with it, with the people that have gone through it. Billy and I have seen it. We, I don't think we're in the promised land yet, but we are at least on the mountaintop and we can, <laughs> we can see the lay of the land and, right. and people are in the land. So I, I'd love that conversation, uh, Valerie, uh, in Hopeville. Um, you, can, you can create a platform for others to have that dialogue about, I'm going through what you went through. What should I be doing? Mm. Thank you, Charlotte. And I echo that. Uh, I would love, you know, uh, I'm a I'm a human rights, civil rights, uh, history type of person, just because I, I feel it's important to understand how these things evolve, because they don't just stay history, they continue to evolve. And so, you know, I have a, a probably a ton of questions for Charlotte uh, about, you know, N- the Nelson Mandela and, and, and the experience in Johannesburg. I, mean, I, I want to hear that. I, I've read about it, but uh, I've never met anyone who were like there. And so, mm-hmm. um, I, you know, I would love that. And by the way, Charlotte, one thing I've stopped doing, I've stopped calling them microaggressions. They're named micro, they're aggressions, period. They're aggressions. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> Nothing micro. Yeah. Nothing micro. And, and on another note, what was it like? Because both of you shared 
very vulnerable, very, very transparent about your experiences. What is it like to share that with a virtual stranger or not quite stranger? I, well, yeah, I think you just hit it. I don't, I mean, after listening to Charlotte, yeah, I don't, I don't feel no strangeness, <laughs> not at all. I don't, mm. I mean, I, I think that, that um, there's a, there's a solidarity there. Um, Absolutely. That, that I definitely sense. And so, yeah, it's, yeah. That, that, that's no problem. Not at all. I, I didn't feel I was talking to someone I don't know. Um, and I think it's easy to get connected with people that uh, share the same, the same purpose in mm. life and and you know i don't know what you called it an urge and an intentionality about being doing good to society and to be doing good and being good in organizations where we are at and you know so that's the that's one of the things that are so powerful about about how uh, listening to Billy Lane, uh, you know and having this dialogue it, i didn't feel for a a you know a fraction of the time that there wasn't something i could say Mm. I was talking to somebody who appreciates my history and 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 who I am, and I appreciate uh, Billy's history and who he is. Mm. What it, it is about. And I appreciate the two of you so incredibly much. It's the conversation exceeded. I don't know if it's exceeded my expectations, but it definitely um, has has moved and and given me the resolve that these are the kind of conversations that make a difference nothing else to connect people. I, I, I think for me, the thing that it's still, it's, I haven't quite nailed it yet, but I'm clear that systems are run by people, right? And if people's hearts don't change, systems can't inherently change. And the people who are managing the systems are the ones that at play. So Charlotte, you're a, dem you're, you're, you're a demonstration of that with that young man that you said you wanted to, or young, or that, that gentleman that wanted to get, that you educated, right, on the history, or you educated on the, the fairness. Like there are these moments where the individual takes a responsibility for making a difference, making a change, exp you know, sharing, exposing something that could shift someone's perspective. And that's, that's really the purpose and the, um, what's, the, what's driving these types of connections for me is like, how do I bring people together that could in their own way, shape or form challenge the status quo? And it doesn't always look like something big, but even a shift in perspective, a shift in how we listen, a shift in our, hmm, you know, how we connect with somebody could hopefully at the end of this conversation, go make a difference someplace else. So it's so grateful the two of you are, are, are willing to say yes to this experiment and that there's more conversation to come as a result of it. And who knows, even greater shifts, perhaps there's even a greater purpose for the two of you meeting and connecting today that we'll never know. And you know, for those of you who have been listening and watching this conversation, I'll be sure to include their contact information. So if you would like to get into conversation with either of them about anything that they said or like to share your experience and your, your comments about their experiences, please do so. Go to www.notquitestrangers.com so that you can subscribe and not miss a single episode, including this one um, in your inbox. Or you can go to the YouTube channel for Connect to Joy and also subscribe to get notifications there. Uh, Charlotte and Billy, I can't say it enough. Thank you, thank you, thank you for your time. Thank you for what you shared and your transparency and uh, looking forward to even more conversations. Thank you for having me and thanks for having us. It's been Yay. Thank you. Thank you. An honor. Uh, Thank you. It's been a treat. All right, everybody, have a wonderful rest of the day, everyone. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast, Not Quite Strangers. Be sure to subscribe or follow on your favorite video or podcast platform. And for more information and content, go to notquitestrangers.com. See you next time. <laughs>